the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or estate law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, horses Thanks again to David Kincaid for leading us into the show. And we are on hallowed ground. We're at the next to Trinity Church, Broadway and Wall Street, next to the Trinity Church Cemetery. So if that's not hallowed ground, I don't know what is. Now, tonight we have a number of guests. And those of you who don't know the show, the show is usually in two parts. The first part, we talk about estate planning and elder law, and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, and it's not always equal parts, we interview guests and you know, usually talk about politics, history, and religion. And a lot of times we talk to people about different charities that are out there. And one of my favorite charities is Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens. Again, I come from Brooklyn, so, you know, that's my hometown. So tonight we're going to have two members of Catholic Charities of Brooklyn, John Podfan, former hockey player with the Islanders, and Monsignor Lapinto, the head of Catholic Charities from Brooklyn right now. Later on in the show, we're going to be talking about religion, and we're going to be talking about religion with David Limbaugh. And David Limbaugh is an author who's, you know, a Christian apologist. And he has, you know, he has another book out about really searching for Jesus or whatever. He's he's a very interesting guy. And our last guest tonight, Pat Buchanan, former presidential candidate, commentator, you know, speech writer. You know, last night I happened to be at a dinner in Conservative Party Chairman Mike Long was there, and we talked a minute about uh, Patrick Buchanan. He says he's had his differences over the years with Pat Buchanan, but one thing you cannot deny, the man is a patriot. So we're looking forward to that interview. Beth, I remember the Pat Buchanan back from the Nixon days. Do you remember that at all? Um, I remember his commentaries. Um, I remember it seemed like he was always... Um, his ideas were unique. If, if if you knew that if he said something, that's that's what he really believed. And I just remember the 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 him being a talking head on the news shows, and um, I found him very interesting, okay. very very interesting. Now, do you have a, an email question for us? I do, and um, this one's kind. Of, this is a tough one. It's from Margot, and she said, um, Dear Mr. Connors, Grandmother died last year and left nothing but her home to my mother and my aunt. My aunt lives in my grandmother's home now. My aunt is 52 years old and intends to stay in the house. My mother may not ever receive her inheritance. Is there anything we can do? No, really, because, uh, you know, the thing is there should be a contingent beneficiary if something happens to mom who gets the, who gets the you know, the asset. Well, if, if, both, the, if both of the sisters, if her mother and her aunt are both on, you know, if they're both supposed to get the house, I, it's a, it seems like, it sounds like that it was in her will. 
Yeah, but the will should say after the death of either sister. So if it doesn't say that, she may be out. You'll have to look at the will. You have to see. Exactly yeah, we'd have what to see a copy of the will before we said anything yeah. with that because there's no clear answer. But any good will would have a what if. Every good right. will has a what if. Every good trust has a what if because you never know what's going to happen. Right. Well, let's take the first call coming in tonight. Antonina in Brooklyn. Yes. What's your question? Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm a widowed senior citizen living in Brooklyn. And when I went to your seminar, I learned that I can transfer my assets to a trust and that my children can be the trustees and also the beneficiaries. I really wanted to know better how the trust can protect my assets and whether my children will be able to take money out of the trust without my permission. Well, how does the trust protect your assets? Basically, you don't have full control of the assets. And that's one of the things, if you set up an irrevocable trust, it's kind of like a partnership between the parents and the children. So let's say there's a house in there. The parents can't sell the house without the children. The children can't sell the house without the parents. At the same time, and usually most of the trust we draft, the parents are able to remove a trustee. In other words, they can remove the children as beneficiaries or as trustees and leave the property to someone else. So it would be very stupid for the children to do something in contrary to their parents' wishes. And can the children take money? Well, yeah, they can. That's why it's called a trust. But at the same time, the parent, if they find out about it, could fire the children as trustees, sue them. And, you know, I know sometimes the old joke is, you know, if you're going to steal from anybody, steal from your family because they won't go to the cops. But it is a danger in a trust. You have to trust that person. That's why it's called a trust. You trust that person with your assets. And listen, I know and I hear stories all the time and I see stories all the time and I know there's some children you can't trust. But 90% of the children, I would say, do the right thing for the parents. And you can trust them. And and again, I'm not putting my head in the sand. Sometimes you got to be careful. you got to be very careful. But the idea behind a trust is to protect assets. It avoids probate. The assets in the trust go out free of capital gains taxes. Right now in New York, if your estate is less than $5,125,000, the entire estate goes out tax-free. And that's between a married couple. We can set up a trust for a husband for $5 million plus, trust for wife, $5 million plus, and we can get well over $10 million at tax rate. But the idea of protecting the assets from medical bills, nursing home bills, somebody else is in charge. If you don't have a child living in the house, you don't have a disabled child, you don't have a spouse, there's a five-year look-back period, and it takes five years to fully protect the asset. So for the most part, if you're in your 60s or 70s, you may want to start starting the five-year look-back period. You put assets in an irrevocable trust today in June. On July 1st, that's month number one, we got the five-year clock started. And it's hard to explain in the few minutes we have left right now, but you're always better off getting the clock started. You're never worse off because it's not as if you go to a nursing home in four years and 11 months, you lose everything. You pay for one month and you're home clear. And, you know, there are a lot of things we can always do. And, you know, some people say, well, what if I don't live five years? And that that question I get asked all the time. You don't live five years. The asset goes outside of probate. It goes tax-free to your kids. And they can sell your house, again, tax-free. They don't have to go to court. And most people don't want to have to go to court. And what a lot of people don't understand, let's say you have a deed to your house, and the deed reads husband and wife. Husband dies first. House automatically passes to wife. Wife, then, in effect, the deed is in her name alone since her husband died. If she dies and the deed is in her name alone, the children have to go to probate if they want to sell the house. Probate is a court proceeding. The problem with it, it's red tape, it's paperwork. If somebody's going to contest the will, it's a problem. If you have missing relatives, it's a problem. If you have medical bills that are liens against your state, it's a problem. And almost anybody, as a result of their last illness, may have medical expenses and excess insurance coverage. So ordinarily, the way we want to go is through a trust. There's an exception to every rule. But you got to trust your kids if you're going to do an irrevocable trust. All right. Um, all right. We've got a couple of minutes left. Now, a Civil War roundtable on June 14th, 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. Chris Bryce is going to be speaking about Grant's Overland campaign. The cost to members is $50. To non-members is $60. Wednesday, June 14th, 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. Dinner at 6, doors open at 5.30. If you want to call, you better call first thing Monday, 718-341-9811, 718-341-9811.
Beth, I know you missed the interview, but we taped an interview last week with Ed Bars about fighting Tom Sweeney. <laughs> and, you know, Ed Bars called fighting Tom Sweeney his hero. So. Oh, it's gonna, that, that's going to be great. That's, so I, I think we're going to play that probably on July 1st. Is that will that coincide with um, General Marr? Yeah, General Marr. They're unveiling the bust in Greenwood Cemetery. We're going to have some more information about that uh, next week, I think, because we're going to have, uh, if if all goes well, we're going to have Jeff Richmond from Greenwood Cemetery talking about that next weekend. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, General Marr, General Marr, Civil War general, born in Ireland, under sentence of death in Ireland, escaped to the United States in the 1850s, became a prominent political figure, and then commander of the Irish Brigade. And if ever you, if any of you ever want to come to my office in Brooklyn, in the front window on Fifth Avenue there, 7410 Fifth Avenue side of the building, there is a military, a miniature, military miniature diorama where General Marr is leading the Irish Brigade in the charge at Antietam. There's no charge to see the diorama. Just come up and see it. And people... <laughs> People see it all the time. So, you know, and of course, David Kincaid always has all those great songs about General Marr. But on July 1st, I think we're going to be talking to Tom Sweeney. And Tom Sweeney's buried in Greenwood Cemetery. So General Marr's wife is buried in Greenwood Cemetery. Tom Sweeney is buried in Greenwood Cemetery. So it's going to be Greenwood Cemetery Day. And, of course, those of you may not know, General Marr's body was never found. And there's a little bit of controversy about that, whether he was murdered or whether he fell off the boat drunk. But we'll talk about that in the future. I guess we'll take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to John Potvin and Monsignor Lepinto. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Taping in the uh, Brooklyn office on 74th Street and 5th Avenue. We're very happy to be graced by the presence of Jean Potvin um, and Senior Alfred Lepinto. How are you doing today, guys? Doing very good, Mike. Thank you. Very well also. Thank you very much for having us. 
Now, you're both with Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens, and we have an event coming up. Monsignor, what's the event? The event coming up is our annual Bishop's Humanitarian Award Dinner. This is the main fundraiser for Catholic Charities. And this year we have, uh, it's June 28th, uh, and it'll be at Cipriano's and Wall Street. And we have three honorees at the dinner. Uh, Charles Murphy, who is a VP, senior VP for Turner Construction. Uh, Joseph Collins III, who is retired uh, from Newburgh Berman. And Dr. Elizabeth Lutas, who has for years been providing medical care for the homeless. John used to play hockey for a living, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I did that for a while. I sure did. Years ago. Okay, what teams? Uh, well, I played a total of, uh, I think it's 12 years. I played in L.A., Philadelphia, but I guess my so-called claim to fame is having played with the New York Islanders with my brother Dennis and a few other pretty good hockey players. And uh, I was very fortunate to be part of the first two Stanley Cup teams. Uh, I retired in 1982, and a team went on to win two more Cups. So that was my previous life. Okay. Now, how did you get involved with Catholic Charities? Well, after hockey, I, I knew that I had to go out and work for a living at that point. And I went uh, and I worked with some really good firms on Wall Street for over 25 years. I started with DLJ, went to Oppenheimer and Company, and so on. And many of these companies uh, eventually would be acquired or whatever. So it got to the point where I basically had enough. I think it was around 2012 that I decided I wanted to do something else. I did not want to retire. And a very dear friend of mine, who's uh, one of the big board members of Catholic Charities, Peter Striano, uh, he made me aware of a position that was open, and he asked me if I'd like to throw my hat in a ring. And I started to look into it with uh, <clears throat> with the bishop at that time and Bishop Sullivan, and um, I found it very, very interesting what they were doing in Brooklyn and Queens, and I decided to join them, and I've been there for, I believe it's going to be three years, Labor Day weekend. Okay, Monsignor. What kind of programs is Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens involved in? Well, Catholic Charities is involved in about 160 different programs throughout Brooklyn and Queens. We start with infant care at our child care centers. Um, we have Early Child Learn. Um, we have uh, Head Start, <clears throat> Early Head Start. We have programs for teenagers, uh, after-school programs, as well as employment programs this summer. We'll probably have, uh, well, in excess of about a 1,000 young people who will be part of the summer youth program where we provide them with employment as well as education opportunities. Uh, we go on and we have another program for young adults. Again, it's a job training program where we get them placements as well as continuing education opportunities. And we have uh, programs uh, for families, family preservation. We do, for the city of New York, we do home base. We are the provider in Queens, as well as having programs in Brooklyn. And that's about trying to keep people out of uh, the shelters, uh, again, trying to stabilize them in a, in a good living situation. We have uh, mental health clinics. We have uh, four mental health clinics, uh, one in Far Rockaway, one in Jamaica, and uh, one in Corona, and one in, in Brooklyn. In addition to that, we have uh, a drug treatment, drug treatment program, uh, and then we have programs for seniors. Uh, we have uh, 21 senior centers throughout Brooklyn and Queens. We have 21 senior buildings where we provide housing for seniors, affordable housing for seniors. We have seven buildings where we provide housing for families, uh, many of whom would have been formerly homeless. And we also have a special program which we call Caring Communities, and that's four buildings that we operate as housing for the formerly homeless. 
In all, we have probably housing for well in excess of 4,000 people um, between uh, the apartment rentals that we do for people with uh, mental illness as well as uh, the apartments we have for seniors and, as I say, for families as well as for the formerly homeless. Uh, And we have in-home care also. We provide in-home care. June 28th, Bishop's Humanitarian Awards Center, Cipriano's. Where is Cipriani's? Cipriano's is on Wall Street. Okay. And where can people buy tickets or find out more about the dinner? They can find out more by getting in touch with uh, John Potvin, and John will give his information. Yes, exactly. I could be reached at uh, this number. That's my direct line, and I'd be happy to get your call. It's area code 718-722-6024. I'll repeat that one more time, 718-722-6024, and please feel free to call me anytime. Thank you. And you'll talk hockey with some of the old Islander fans. Sure, I, I do it all the time. A lot of people come out of the woodwork. I'm surprised they remember me. It's been that long ago. Okay. <laughs> June 28th, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens, Cipriano's Restaurant. Thank you, gentlemen, for what you're doing. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's top-rated lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at 6. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now, we're very pleased to have on David Limbaugh, who has a new book, The True Jesus. How are you doing today, sir? Great. Thanks for having me on. What's the point behind the book, The True Jesus? It is a uh, an introduction to the Gospels, uh, and I have it's in two sections. The first is the first four chapters cover the background material, uh, the intertestamental history, the period between the writing of the last book of the Old Testament of Malachi around 400 B.C. to 3 A.D. when Christ came to Earth, or whenever exactly it was that 400-year silent period. What happened during that period? What were the Jews' messianic expectations when Jesus came? What were the circumstances surrounding the area of Palestine when Jesus came, the Roman peace, the Hellenization of the culture, the Jewish infrastructure, all of these factors combined to make the spread of the gospel uh, easier? And uh, what what are the gospels essentially about, the different perspectives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who were they written to, who were they written by, when were they written, and all that stuff, and the reliability of the scriptures. Then the, the bulk of the book, the two-thirds of the book, is in part two, chapters five through 12, where I combine the four Gospels into one unified narrative account for the purpose of 
exposing the reader to all of Jesus' words and all of the events that occurred, mostly verbatim. Sometimes I'll paraphrase for the sake of space limitations. But the, the purpose is to introduce the reader to the substance of the gospel, and then I have commentaries throughout every event. There's probably 250 different events that I've arranged chronologically, uh, roughly chronologically. But it's not the, the intent is not to perfectly harmonize uh, the four Gospels. We need those four different perspectives. It is to, to give the reader an introduction and an overview of the meat of the Gospel so they'll be inspired to go to the books themselves and read them. That's the goal. Now, of course, obviously today we're in a very secular age, and there are going to be some people that are saying, well, wait a minute, the New Testament is just fairy tales, you know, the myths of the Greek gods and stuff. So, so why are you studying them? Isn't it irrelevant? <laughs> well, I think the evidence for Christianity being true is, is, is overwhelming when you, when you weigh it, when you study it. And Jesus lived in history. He was attested by, oh, eight or ten secular extra-biblical sources. Uh, he, the, the reliability of the New Testament, uh, New Testament documents are beyond question when compared to any other ancient document. Uh, we have the writers of the, the New Testament being eyewitnesses, their close associates of the eyewitnesses, who were transformed from cowardly skeptics to bold proclaimers of the gospel. All of these factors point to the fact that Jesus lived in history. In fact, no serious scholar denies that he lived, and that he affected people in a profound way to the point where they gave their, their lives to him. No one would think that someone would die for something they knew to be a lie. It's one thing if you have an idea that something may or may not be true. These people went to their graves in martyrdom proclaiming something they witnessed. And they, why, would, why in the world would they do that if they knew they hadn't witnessed it? Nobody would do that. Uh, so I, I think the evidence is very powerful, and it has eternal consequences. And so we better be serious about studying it. Jesus claimed he was the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to God. He's the only way to the Father. Uh, and <clears throat> you either accept or reject that proposition, but if you don't make a choice, a choice will be made for you. I understand from some of your writings or whatever, you're, you're relatively new to embracing Christianity. Well, uh, relatively new is a relative term. I guess you, you would say I wasn't initially a believer in Christianity. I Probably 25 to 30 years ago, though, I became a believer. But the first half of my life, I believed in God, but I didn't embrace the Bible or Christianity. I just It's not that I rejected it, it's just that I didn't get into it enough. And when I did, I studied the evidence, studied the Bible, and I ultimately became a believer. You know, you hear that a lot right now, you know, like, uh, I don't go to church, uh, I don't necessarily believe in the Gospels, but I'm a spiritual person. I really don't even know what people say that, and I really don't know what it means. I think they're fooling themselves, or, or not necessarily fooling themselves, but it's kind of generalized talk without any real meaning. To say you're a spiritual person means you consider yourself to think deeply about the all-defining issues of, of the world, or some people think they're ascetics or monastics and uh, kind of apart from the world and and consider themselves Zen. I really don't know what they mean. It's kind of New Age speak to me. The question is, did Jesus claim to be God? And I, there's no question in my view that he did, all throughout the Gospels, particularly in the book of John. And if he claimed to be God and that he's the only way to salvation, then, then you really need to take that claim seriously and decide whether it's true, and you have to evaluate it for, for yourself. But there's no in-between ground. You can't say, like so many people do, that Jesus was just a great prophet, because he couldn't have been just a great prophet. If he was a great, if he was a prophet and not God, then he was not a moral person, because he claimed to be God. So a mere prophet claiming to be God is a deceiver. So he's either the Lord a liar or a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis said. Uh, there's no in-between. That doesn't mean you have to accept him, but I'm saying if, in evaluating his claims, you can't have it both ways. He's just not some Gandhi-type leader. 
Uh, he is the God of the universe and also a human being. Now, what do you say to those people who say, wait a minute, there are a lot of discrepancies in the Gospels. How, how do you put that together? There are different accounts from different Gospel writers, and they have different perspectives, and they have different emphases, too. I mean, the, Matthew re- depicted Christ as a king. He descended from the line of David, uh, the line of kings. He spoke authoritatively. Matthew spoke uh, preached mostly to the Jews. He had a heart for his fellow Jews. And so he invoked Old Testament Scripture more often than any other gospel writer and showed how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. He was trying to convince his fellow Jews of the truth of Christianity and of Jesus Christ. And so that's what his emphasis was. Mark was more focused on Jesus as a suffering servant. And, and it's a shorter gospel, rapid-paced, a lot of action. Uh, Luke emphasized Christ's humanity. As I said, he was fully God and fully human. And then John focused on his deity. There are seven I am statements, meaning the I am is the name for Yahweh in the Old Testament, the great I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus clearly identified himself as God. He said, the I and the Father are one. Uh, the book of Hebrews said he's the exact imprint of his nature. He claimed the authority to forgive sins. He interpreted, reinterpreted Old Testament scriptures. Uh, he, he is, he again, he, he's not what some people depict him as. But there are alleged discrepancies in the Gospels that I think can be reconciled, such as uh, the one one Gospel writer writes of, two angels appearing at the tomb, the empty tomb. Another one talks about one angel speaking. Didn't mention the second one. That doesn't mean there weren't two. It just means he emphasized one and talked about the one who spoke. And there are all kinds of those kinds of things. Gospel writers didn't all write in chronological order, so they'll they'll have different uh, emphases on the chronology, on, on the events, depending how they wanted to, to uh, focus on things. So uh, there are a lot of alleged discrepancies that can be reconciled with further study. This may be a stupid question, but some people make this argument that since after the resurrection, many of the witnesses did not recognize Jesus when first speaking to him. How do we know it wasn't an imposter or somebody playing Jesus? Yeah, there's there are no stupid questions. The disciples, uh, the, well, let me back up. The Jews at the time Jesus came, were expecting a Messiah who would be a military or political deliverer, would unyoke them from the oppressor Rome, the Roman Empire. <laughs> so when Jesus came and refused to lift a finger to fight Rome uh, and allowed himself to go to the grave in humiliation and, in, and be crucified, I mean go to the cross and be crucified, uh, people were disillusioned, the Jews were disillusioned, Anyone who was hung on a tree, the Old Testament scripture said, is cursed. Well, how could the Messiah be cursed? How could he be supposed to be a big military leader, greater than anyone has ever seen, and lead Israel to triumph militarily and politically? And he not only doesn't lift a finger to help Israel, he doesn't lift a finger to to help himself. But the thing is, what they didn't understand in the Old Testament scriptures is the Old Testament also prophesied a suffering servant. And Jesus didn't conquer Rome, but he did conquer through his voluntary death, uh, Satan, sin, and death, a much greater foe than the Roman Empire. Uh, but there's, there's, no, there's nothing to be ashamed of by these people who misunderstood, by the Jews who misunderstood what the Messiah would look like, because it was presented kind of in a mosaic and not as a direct revelation. I mean, this is direct revelation, but it was presented in the Old Testament in fragments, and only through the New Testament perspective do, do we see, through the New Testament lenses, do we see clearly that Jesus was also to be a suffering servant, that the Messiah was to be a suffering servant. But you, you uh, talk about the Jesus in, I don't know if you're also asking about the Jesus depicted uh, in the popular culture. People want to depict him as a, as kind of a namby-pamby, milk-toast, intolerant, I mean tolerant of sin, tolerant of all different viewpoints, when in fact Jesus 
uh, gave us the most exacting moral standard known to mankind. Be perfect as your holy father is perfect. He whipped, he took a whip of cords and drove the money changers out of the temple. He rebuked the Pharisees for external indicia of righteousness by, while being internally corrupt. So he was not indifferent to sin. He was extremely uh, interested or adamant that we adhere to an absolute moral standard, even though we couldn't ultimately live up to it. So uh, I just think people misunderstand who Jesus was, and we need to be true to the Scripture. Now, Jesus is also the most loving, compassionate, and forgiving being ever, but he, he was not indifferent to sin, and he did insist on a moral standard because he is God, and God is perfectly holy. Final question. What do you want the reader to take away from your book? What I'd really like to do is impart to the reader my enthusiasm for the Gospels themselves to give them some background information and deeper information about what the Gospels actually are, what, what actually occurred in the Gospels, what words Jesus spoke, and have my passion for the Bible and for the Gospels be contagious so that they will be incentivized, so they will be excited and inspired to read the Gospels for themselves. Because while books about Jesus and about the Bible are awesome, and I hope my book is good in that way, there is no substitute for reading the book of Jesus, of God, of the Bible itself, it's the Word of God. It's the only place you are in, will fully encounter the living Son of God. My, my book, my kinds of, the kind of book I wrote, will help get people into it and give them information. I think we have an obligation to teach each other as fellow believers or even as Christians talking to non-believers. Help them, teach them what the Bible says. But then always drive them toward the Word itself. It has the power to transform lives. Jesus Christ has the power to transform power to transform lives, and he is revealed in the scriptures. The name of the book, The True Jesus, by David Limbaugh. Thank you for fighting the good fight. Thank you, sir, for having me. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is a man who's a keen observer of history, who was there when history was made, and who's not afraid to speak his mind, even if it's unpopular. In retrospect, a lot of opinions he expressed in the past turned out to be right. And I'm very happy to have our next guest, Pat Buchanan. 
How you doing today? Doing just fine, Mike. Okay, you have a book out, Nixon's White House, Nixon's White House Wars. What's it about? It's about all the battles in Richard Nixon's White House, which lasted for five and a half years. And those battles are really the original battles, I think, of the of the great struggles that the country faces today between Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, folks who support Trump and folks who are opposed. I mean, the battle over judges, the Supreme Court justices, began in the Nixon White House years. The war between the media, the media and the White House, and uh, uh, that began in, uh, in 1969 when Spiro Agnew launched his attacks on the networks. So all of these battles that we see today have their origins back in the 1960s and early 70s. Now, you mentioned something I think most of us have forgotten about, but Nixon had some problems getting some of his Supreme Court justice nominees through the Senate. What he did was Nixon got his first justice, uh, Chief Justice Berger. Warren Berger was a federal judge from Minnesota to replace Earl Warren. That went through fine, but Nixon's next two appointees, the chief judge of the Fourth Circuit, uh, Clement Hainsworth, and Harold Carswell of the Fifth Circuit, were both rejected and cut to pieces by the Senate. And in, uh, and Nixon had to pick Harry Blackman, which was a terrible mistake, the author of Roe v. Wade. But these, uh, these battles were really the preliminary fights that uh, took place back in the early 70s, which we saw again with the battles over Clarence Thomas and, and Robert Bork in the Reagan era and the Bush era. Is there any counterpart with there's any time where the Republicans, I remember one time they, they tried to block Abe Fortas when Lyndon Johnson was president we toward did. the end of his term. Yes. We did block him. That was 1968. Lyndon Johnson tried a stunt. He and Earl Warren conspired basically in June of 1968 when it looked like Nixon could be the next president. Warren was going to quit, but contingent upon uh, Abe Fortas being elevated to Chief Justice, who was a crony of Lyndon Johnson. And we blocked that move. Republicans blocked it with our support in the Nixon uh, campaign staff. And the next year, Fortas was forced out because he had been caught in a scandal getting a retainer from a convicted swindler. So he was forced out. And that's for, very true, Mike. I think it was the bad blood from, that, uh, from the forced resignation of Fortas that helped uh, propel the Democrats like Kennedy and Bayh to chop up the Nixon judges when they were nominated. For those of the younger people in our audience, you're not just talking about this stuff abstractly. You were in the Nixon White House. What was your position? I was a formerly a speechwriter and special assistant to the president, but I'd been with Nixon for three years before and was for a while the only aide he had up in New York in his law firm who was political. And so I had been very close to the president and first lady for three and a half years before we got to the White House. And so I was very much involved in all of these particular battles before Watergate and during Watergate. And one of the recommendations in the book, as I've, I put the, the memo in there, was that Nixon, as soon as the tapes were revealed, since uh, they had been made secretly, that he ought to really destroy all the tapes that were not related directly to conversations with John Dean and foreign policy in Burnham. What would you think would have happened then if he did that? He would have survived. He said so himself in his memoirs. Again, some of us today, we see the hostility between Trump and the press. And at, at, at times back in the late 60s, early 70s, it's almost like the press had an irrational hatred of Richard Nixon. I wouldn't call it irrational, but they did have a deep animus and and hatred of Nixon that dated back to the late 1940s. Hiss, I mean, Nixon had exposed Alger Hiss as a communist spy. He was a darling of the establishment, a State Department icon. He had been at Yalta, and Nixon exposed him as a communist spy. And then Nixon, in the Senate race in California in 1950, ripped up Helen Gahagan Douglas, who was another icon of liberals, and then he ripped up Adelaide Stevenson so that Nixon... Uh, second only to Joe McCarthy, was really despised by the elite and establishment press as someone who really chopped them up on the anti-communist issues. And they never got over it. Even though Nixon was a sort of a, a progressive in terms of domestic policy, uh, I mean, look what he did. He put in the 18-year-old vote. Uh, he indexed Social Security. He created Title IX. He created the EPA and OSHA. And uh, all of these reforms 
political reforms which liberals loved, are, many of them are traceable to the Nixon White House years. Again, you were with Nixon a long time. It, I, I know this was done in a, a former book of yours, a prior book, where you talk about the greatest comeback, where really Richard Nixon was at the bottom of the political heap in 1962 or after the 62 election. Sure. Nixon lost the... He had lost to Jack Kennedy in that very narrow election of 1960, where people believe it was stolen in Texas and Illinois. Uh, but regardless, I mean, the press were all for Jack Kennedy. And then Nixon went back to California after his defeat. He didn't challenge the election, and he ran for governor and got clobbered uh, in 1962, right after the missile, Cuban Missile Crisis. And so Nixon had a last press conference, denounced the press, moved to New York to practice law, and when I joined up with him, he was the main thing he was called was America's biggest loser, and uh, and no one felt that if he could that if he couldn't win the governorship of California, he was ever going to win the presidency of the United States. But astonishingly, he not only came back and won with 43 percent in '68 in 1972, ten years after that defeat by Pat Brown in California. Richard Nixon won a 49-state landslide over George McGovern and simply crushed the Democratic Party. Let's talk about one of the controversial areas of the Nixon administration, Vietnam. What are your comments about the Vietnam? And, of course, a lot of people forget he didn't start the Vietnam War. No, Nixon came into office with 535,000 Americans in Vietnam in 1969. And what Nixon's program was, quote, Vietnamization, he would start the gradual withdrawal of American troops but leave the South Vietnamese trained and armed and equipped that after four years after the Americans had fully withdrawn, they could defend their own country. And in 1973, America's POWs were coming home, all of them, and, uh, and every provincial capital was in Saigon's hands. But when Nixon was broken in Watergate and he lost the ability to use American air power and uh, the Congress stripped the South Vietnamese of the means with which to defend themselves. North Vietnam, communist North Vietnam, overran the South uh, eight months or, or, yeah, about eight months after Richard Nixon left office. And so the Vietnam War was lost. Uh, America lost it, and it was lost on Gerald Ford's watch. But it was the Congress of the United States that did it. And I think the Congress uh, never really recovered from that. Neither did the Democratic Party from the perception that they had marched us into Vietnam and then gone over the hill. I was in the service when the Paris Peace Accords were signed and also with the fall of Saigon. And I was in Europe at the time, but I remember a lot of the older guys with me were crying when Saigon fell. Well, they, they have every reason to do so. I mean, uh, Americans had fought alongside the South Vietnamese for all those years. And then we pulled out and, uh, and the North Vietnamese came in and there were executions in the streets and concentration camps. Cambodia had a Holocaust, and hundreds of thousands of South Vietnamese friends and allies of the United States who had cast their lot with us. Uh, they're in the South China Sea, drowning, and uh, and it was just a horrendous thing. And I don't think anyone that went through that. I mean, if you were in the service, especially you, but none of us who were of age then and had watched, seen the war unfold, was not unaffected by it. And I think if there's, it's a permanent scar and. Uh, on not only the greatest generation, but the silent generation, and many of the baby and the baby boomers who fought in that war. Now, your book, Nixon's White House Wars. What do we take out of it for today's world? I think the uh, what comes out of it is that this was the origin of uh, many of the divisions and battles and and struggles that we we face today. That America was first divided, really deeply in uh, <clears throat> in the 1960s. I would say from from the middle years of Lyndon Johnson through the Nixon years, it was divided irreparably. And those divisions have endured. They've gone under the surface somewhat during the Reagan years. But Reagan, they tried to even break Reagan but during Iran-Contra, but now they've surfaced. And the hostility and hatred and the bristling hostility toward Trump is like nothing I've ever seen in his first four months in office. I mean, when, with Nixon, even though Nixon was disliked, and disparaged by the press, and they only grumbled during his first four months. He actually was doing very well. And when he turned on the press and fought back, Mike, consider this, at the end of 1969, after his first year, with two enormous demonstrations in Washington, 250, 350,000, 
with 5,000 peeling off and trashing the Justice Department and putting up the Viet Cong flag on Constitution Avenue. Nixon was at 68% approval and 19% disapproval. Well, thank you for bringing that to light. The name of the book, Nixon's White House Wars, The Battles That Made and Broke a President and Divided America Forever. The author, Pat Buchanan, thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. Delighted, Mike. Okay, well, thanks again to Pat Buchanan. Uh, now, those of you, you may want to check out our Facebook page. And, Beth, how do people do that? Well, you get on Facebook. You need a Facebook account, which is easy. Um, and then you look for us. Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. And then you just type in a search, Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. And then you find us, and you, you hit on the page, and the page comes up, and you like us. And the nice thing about that, once you like the page, then you get to see who's coming up, you know, who the next guests are going to be. And you can get on there to hear, to see Pat, who's been on before, and even get links to our YouTube um, recordings of your interviews with people. And, you know, one of the other things, too, by the way, I should have mentioned this earlier. If you want to email us a question, Please feel free to email a question to us at the answer at connorsandsullivan.com. The answer at connorsandsullivan.com. Got to spell everything out. Yeah, now we answer every email. Sometimes we don't get some of the questions on the air, but we do answer every email question that comes in. And, you know, also one of the things about Facebook, which I kind of like looking at the page every once in a while, you have pictures of our guests. So you have an idea of what they look like. And, and, one of the events we were at uh, this Thursday, we saw Joe Pierce, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and a couple of months ago he was on the show after he had come out with his book Race with the Devil. And I know a lot of people make comments about that show because, you know, some people were actually crying at his story. You know, he spent time in jail in England for hate speech. He was an admitted fascist, neo-Nazi, and his second term in jail in England – he found a set of rosary beads and converted. And right now he has a play on at the Sheen Center in Manhattan. So, you know, Joe Pierce. If you have a chance, it's a, it's it's not expensive. And if you and a friend, somebody in your family want to go to the Sheen Center, it's a lovely, lovely evening out. Okay, and if you want to see some pictures of Joe Pierce up there, you can go check out our Facebook page. Well, I think we got uh, David Kincaid coming on. Oh, no. Yeah, so see you next week. Bye-bye. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.